As we come to the reading of the word, even though I feel like we've just been prayed over, I'm going to pray a prayer uh, for the reading of the word. Um, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word written in a language that we understand. We ask that you open our hearts, our minds, our spirits to receive everything you have for us from your word and that we would be strengthened and renewed and not for a, for a moment would we turn away being unchanged. We thank you for your word and we ask your blessing on the reading of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're reading um, the, the ESV version and this is from 1 Corinthians starting verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given, his, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to put out put you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you were obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even through a door, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? This is the word of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeff Moger, and I serve as an elder here at the barn. And occasionally, like a few others of you, give, uh, give Matt a chance to rest and get some time off and recharge his preaching batteries. Uh, and so today, that's why I'm here. We are in the middle of a sermon series with the title, Not So Great Letters. Not So Great Letters. Not so great because of the circumstances that necessitated the letters being written. 
Nevertheless, 1 Corinthians is a letter with great truth contained in it. Written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote at least 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, basically about half of them. So far in our series, Pastor Matt introduced the book to us, then Michael Ware spoke on the challenges of mixing religion and politics in Corinth and in our current world. Uh, and then last week, Corey spoke to the fact about the face of in the face of division in the church, the new, belie new believers still had a new life and new power to live that life. This morning, we will continue our look at the great disunity in the church at Corinth. Before we do that, though, join me in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the way you revealed yourself to those who followed you in the flesh 2,000 years ago. Thank you for the letters we have that were written by those who knew you and encountered you in such powerful ways. Let us encounter you in a similar manner through the ministry of your spirit and your word. Open our eyes to see you better this morning. Amen. I was assigned chapters, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 4. It's about uh, three and a half chapters, and I was a little bit overwhelmed by it all and kind of struggled a little bit. Chapters 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians is a section that contains Paul's description of and response to the problem of division or disunity in the church. As mentioned, Corey introduced the topic last week. My process for preparing a sermon is to read the scripture in various translations to get a feel for the topic and try to identify the overall message of the passage. I pray, I read commentaries, both those that look at the passage from 10,000 feet and those that break down each word, phrase, and sentence like under a microscope. I genuinely enjoy this part of the preparation as I engage God's word through the experience of others and with the insights of those who have come before. I usually listen to a few sermons on the passage available online. I read what the scholars of modern Christianity have commented on in regards to the passage. I then form an outline of what it seems the Lord is directing me to say and the final step is to flesh out that outline into a sermon. I went through this process this summer, but I continued to struggle to identify the unifying message. After talking more with Matt and then again with Corey, I decided to make the sermon about what the passage is about, the disunity of the Church of Corinth. Not exactly a revolutionary concept to let the scripture determine the topic. We heard last week about the same topic, but Paul wrote three and a half chapters on it, so it seems okay to have two sermons on it. This week we will focus on some ways to reunify the church. So here we go. The ancient city of Corinth dates back to prehistory around 3000 BC. In 400 BC, 2600 years later, the city had a population of 90,000 people, which is basically the same as the population of the Farmington Valley, where we are uh, today, if you add the, t the total populations of the major towns in the Farmington Valley. That city was sacked and leveled by the Roman legions in 146 BC and then rebuilt by the Romans 100 years later. It was a city of great importance due to its location on the isthmus that connected the Peloponnesus Peninsula with the Greek mainland. The Peloponnesus Peninsula. I'll try to say that three times fast. 
It was a key city in trade since the north-south road passed through the city. Ships and or their cargo were carried across the isthmus when traveling east or west. Today there's actually a canal that was built to make it easier for the ships to travel east-west. You don't have to carry them anymore. Romans, Greeks, and Jews all lived, in this, lived together in this cosmopolitan city. It was also a sports center, being the home of the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games in ancient Greece. Temples, shrines, and altars were common throughout the city, showing its religious significance. It also served as the administrative center for the Roman rule in the province. In short, Corinth was a diverse place with tremendous importance to Greece and Rome and bustling with activity. Paul had founded the church there when he lived in the city for 18 months on one of his missionary journeys, most likely in either 49 or 50 AD. It was a city built on secular and pagan values and that presented a huge challenge to the new church. Today's scripture, and in fact all of chapters 2, 3, and 4, are Paul's teaching on dealing with division. Division in the church is a problem for any community at any time. It can arise from a list of causes. Many churches see problems with disunity due to the lack of communication or even a lack of direction. A lack of prayer can also be an underlying cause. Paul warns of spiritual immaturity helping cause division. A final cause may be the sinful behaviors of either church leaders or its members. These behaviors might include gossip, pride, slander, or just straight out selfishness. No church of humans is immune to these problems. In chapter 3, Paul will paint two images of what unity can look like in a church. One is of workers in a garden performing the tasks of, showing, uh, of sowing, watering, and reaping together while God provides the growth. Another is the image of workers constructing a building. Together they put up walls and a roof, but Jesus must be the foundation. These images of unity are the goal of a church community, and Paul encourages us to reach for them. Ultimately in this letter though, Paul is seeking to end the factions splitting up the church in Corinth. In the particular section we are looking at today, it seems he is suggesting three strategies to end the divisions. In the first section, chapters 120 to 25, Paul is discussing wisdom. In 126 to 25, his strategy is one of humility and weakness. And he finishes chapter 2 with a discussion of the role that the Spirit plays in ending the factions in the church. Let's look first at wisdom. Paul's message to the church is really not a complicated one. Christian unity comes from an acknowledgement by every follower of Jesus that he alone is the source of wisdom and power to overcome any trial, including divisiveness or the habit of causing disagreement or, or hostility between people. Man's way of thinking and God's way of thinking do not correspond. As an example of this, Paul uses the cross. Chapter 1, verse 23, calls the crucifixion of Jesus a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Men naturally want to choose sides and argue and debate over topics. I know I like to. 
Corey mentioned last week that Corinth was known for their public speakers and their rhetoricians who could argue any side of, uh, on any debate with skill and scholarship, but at the same time they rejected the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus. Their human wisdom could not imagine that God would bring salvation to mankind by the execution of his own son as a common criminal. To a Corinthian Greek, salvation, if, if it was truly needed, would come via man's efforts and his unlimited capacity to achieve greatness. An incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection was not possible and not necessary and was therefore folly or foolishness. To a Jewish person, the cross was inconceivable. Salvation would come via God intervening in another exodus or miraculous deliverance from the enemies of Israel. They expected a conquering king, not a suffering servant. The gospel of Jesus was a stumbling block indeed. Yet Christ crucified was God's plan for the world, God's wisdom. This is what Paul preached. The wisdom of God in verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. God's wisdom and power unite people. Man's wisdom can lead to division. We can and need to learn to look at every situation or issue from the divine viewpoint. God does not think or act the way we do or often the way we may expect him to. We will do better to surrender to his wisdom, his way of thinking. The followers of Jesus today do not want to just know about Jesus. We want to know Jesus. As a history teacher, which I am, a high school history teacher, I know about a few things. For example, I, I happen to know a lot about a guy by the name of Mao Zedong, the founding father of modern China. But I do not know him. To know him, I would have to talk with him, spend time with him, read his writings, engage with him on the deepest of levels. I would, I would, want, to, I would want to watch him in action with others and see him as he goes through challenges, successes, and disappointments. Of course, that would be hard. He, died in 1976. The same is true of Jesus. I want to have the wisdom of God, so what do I do? Talk with him, listen to him in prayer, spend time sitting in his presence both with others and individually, read and study his words both with people of a similar mindset and also on my own. I want to know Jesus, not just know about Jesus. These are all steps that we each can take to gain wisdom that is not of this world, not from the natural man. Knowledge can be, can be gained quite quickly, but wisdom takes a longer time to acquire. We don't need to do it alone. That is the benefit of like-minded people in our congregation. In fact, it is imperative to not try to do it alone. Spending time together seeking wisdom is one way of avoiding division and increasing unity. If we are united in our pursuit of the wisdom of Jesus, we will be united with each other. Unity through the pursuit of wisdom. Now, how about humility and weakness? First century Corinth was not a place of humility, but one of heroics. Greeks have lots of heroes. We know them. Euclid, Pythagoras, Hippocrates, Herodotus, the father of history. 
are all well known and we can add them to Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. The culture has much to brag about and they celebrate individual greatness. But Paul is clear that boasting in oneself is foolish. He says it in verse 31. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Humility is a better road to take if one is seeking un unity. The Old Testament figure Job learned that lesson. Job was an upright and devout man who lost all his worldly possessions and then some. In the book of Job, his friends try to console him. And much of the book is a long dialogue between Job and his friends. Job defends himself. In the 38th chapter of Job, though, he has finished his defense of his own righteousness and goodness before God. And then the Lord responds. In verse 4, God says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? He goes on for three more chapters asking Job questions and in doing so comparing Job's claims to God's actions. Where were you when I was doing all this? Where were you at that time? The father is reminding Job of who he is and who God is. Job is humbled and repentant. repentant. The Lord ultimately restores Job both bodily and bountifully. And to understand who we are in comparison to God is to accept humility and to find connection and unity with fellow humans. We can remember this in the words of the Lord to Job. Where were you? Paul stresses that a humble person does not partake in division. Chapter 1, 26 to 28, Paul reminds the church that they are not the high and mighty of Corinth. They are the common people chosen by God for his purposes. They were not chosen for their strengths, but for their weaknesses. We are the same way today. It is Jesus' strength that makes us strong or successful, not ours. Jesus chose followers to work closely with, to pour into. They were not chosen from the elite of first century Palestine. Among the 12 disciples were fishermen, quite a few of them, a tax collector, and a zealot. Not exactly the elite crust of society. Why did he not choose rabbis or Pharisees or even Pontius Pilate himself? God often chooses the humble to do his work because they will rely on him and his power, not their own skill set. Let us never forget that we were chosen in the same way. Chosen to serve alongside others, not within our own strength, but in fact within our own weaknesses so that God gets the, the glory that he alone deserves. European Christian missionaries brought the gospel to Japan in the 16th and 17th century. They used a particular strategy. They first tried to convert the noble class uh, of Japan called the daimyos, thinking that if the local lord became a Christian, then the rest would follow. In fact, it worked. This actually worked to the point that in the 1620s, the shogun, the ruler of the whole kingdom, decided to close the country off to the outside world as too many people were practicing Christianity and their loyalty to the shogun and emperor were coming into question. He closed the country off and kept it closed for over 200 years. During that closed period, many sincere Christian converts suffered tremendously for their faith. However, many others simply rejected Christ and went back to previous practices. Their faith was the faith of the daimyo, and not their own, as their conversion was based on convenience, not conviction. 
In contrast, Jesus chose the lowly and the humble. And when opposition came against them, they remained true to the faith. Paul reminds his readers that God chose the same kind of people in Corinth. The church there was not made up of the elite leaders of the city, but mostly of people without status or fame or reason to boast. No human being should boast in the presence of God. Humility and weakness bring unity to the church of Jesus. Paul concludes this point by making it very personal. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he speaks of coming to Corinth without lofty speech or his own wisdom. He came simply with Jesus Christ and him crucified. He confesses that he came to Corinth with weakness and fear and trembling, not words we usually associate with Paul, but not with skillful oratory. Paul did not come to argue people into a relationship with the Lord, but to let them know that Jesus is the way to life in God's kingdom. People come to the Lord because of the work of the Lord, not the work of Paul or anybody else. They have a role to play in the process, but it is the Lord that does the work. We stay unified by letting this humbling thought eliminate any thought of our strength. It is our weakness that he uses, not our strength. It is strange to encourage you, perhaps it's strange to encourage you to accept your weaknesses, but we accept them knowing that God's strength is more than able to overcome our weaknesses. It is not the humble man who brings division to the church, but the proud and arrogant man. Let's not forget that. The good news is that in this process of accepting weakness and moving toward unity, we get help from the Holy Spirit. The church in Corinth had become divided by relying on their own wisdom in a very non-humble way. The solution is to surrender their own way of thinking and to earnestly seek God's way of thinking. How do you do this? Chapter Paul, uh, chapter Paul, in chapter 2, Paul says that we, the followers of Jesus, have received, quote, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. God has given us the Holy Spirit to interpret the written word. Through the spirit and the word, we can receive the mind of Christ. This is how we search the scripture, guided by the Spirit, to learn God's way of thinking. We gradually learn to evaluate all things from God's unique perspective. Do I want to be able to do this? Do I want the mind of Christ? Do we? It seems that this skill is not as rare a gift as one might think. I have been fortunate to have spent time with people who I think have this gift, more than one. One of the first times in my life was in the summer of 1981. I attended a Christian college student retreat in Michigan for about five weeks. It was sponsored by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and the organization's president was there at the time, a man by the name of Dr. John Alexander. Being cool and casual college students, we decided to call him Dr. A. He was actually retiring from the position and serving after serving for a dozen years. On more than one occasion that summer, though, people found themselves doing something with Dr. A, walking, sitting, eating, or working. 
It seemed that everyone he spoke with came away with a new perspective on something. Maybe something small and relatively insignificant or something larger and more substantial. A friend said to me, I walked with him and just waited for him to speak as inevitably he would have insights about some aspect of life that came from years of evaluating things with God's perspective, trying to take on the mind of Christ. Dr. A was further along on that path than most people and many of us young people benefited from it. I think there are many who do the same today, some here at the barn. Can we take our time and energy to take on the mind of Christ? If we do with humility and wisdom and the help of the Holy Spirit, divisions will melt away and unity within the church of Jesus will prevail. Paul wants us to study the scriptures so we can learn to abandon our own points of view and submit, our, submit ourselves instead to God's points of view. Throughout the passage we read today, and in fact much of the chapters 2 through 4, Paul is teaching that the church at Corinth and the church today some basic principles for practicing life together without division. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. The church can model the unity of the triune God. The church that is racked with division, whether in first century Greece or in 21st century USA, ignores Jesus' call for unity. Wise and humble submission to the Spirit and the Word of God can create the unity that reflects the unity of God. Jesus is the source of our faith not some individual leader or denomination. In Corinth, it was, I follow Paul, or perhaps, I follow Apollos. Today, it may be something like, well, I'm a Presbyterian. Well, I am an evangelical. Well, I am a fundamentalist. We do not lift up a personality or a doctrine, as that is the wisdom of the world and foolishness in the eyes of God. Like Paul and the church at Corinth, our identity is with Jesus and Him crucified. That is the foundation of our faith and our unity as a body of believers. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your wisdom, your humility, and your spirit, which enable us to be a unified people. Let us embrace unity in our body as the Godhead embraces unity in heaven. Amen.